Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist, with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I am Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. This is part two of the deep dive conversation with Tim Stock, co-founder of Scenario DNA. In part one, Tim and I talked about the importance of culture mapping, languages as culture, and how our future is here, but in the shadows. In part two, we will continue to look at issues of culture in our broader society, and we will go off the dome on two billionaires. Check it out now. The ambiguity is one thing. The philosophical is another, right? That even the way in, in which we frame these conversations as when I was in business school, the soft skills versus the hard skills and the things that really matter versus the things that don't. You know, when we use certain language and certain cues and try to have a value-based conversation, I find there's still pushback to those ideas that using a lot of the language that we're using now in this conversation, I feel organizations, even with acknowledging the volatility, they're still uncomfortable yeah. with the language. Of course. I mean, and that is, you know, been the motivation around building a methodology and a patent uh, around providing evidence. I think there are a lot of people that sort of say you need to do stuff. You know, you need to move towards a permaculture approach, whatever. I work with a lot of clients in this way, and they will have worked with other consultants. You know, we should be thinking about 3D, or we should be thinking about these other... We have no idea how. Like, what does that actually really mean? When we're working with them, there's a very practical idea in terms of bringing some evidence in terms of where is that that we need to be looking at? What does it look like? How do they talk about it? How does that become kind of the beginning of DNA towards an innovation platform that whether it's a pilot that then is sort of, you know, broadened out, is that you can start sort of recognizing, you know what you have. You also can start thinking about measuring success in different ways because you do that. I mean, how you develop KPIs now, I mean, the kinds of KPIs that are really key performance indicators, is they're not what we had 20 years ago. They're not even what we had 10 years ago. It speaks to the issue of scale. So you're trying to give them other things to measure that is that sort of ambiguous kind of space. When you think about things like cities, there's indexes of what are the best cities. It's all about livability. Tell me what livability is. You can't, I can't ask somebody if they live in a livable city. It's a combination of factors. It's understanding what's the language that's coming together that actually makes, you know, people feel they have a certain level of public engagement within those cities. But then it also plays out in very practical, mundane, mundane ways on a daily basis. There are particular groups I can see. There are new groups that have emerged. It's like there's an activity, there's kind of a mechanics to kind of how things are working that you can provide a client to sort of say, you need to start investing in that, bringing it in and synchronizing what you do as a company with how society is actually functioning. Defining terms mm -hmm. seems to be critical, right? Yeah. So when you talk about livability. And I think these are design choices. And this allows us to sort of segue into a conversation about where design can, should be used, how people think about design. But I often come back to these livability. Who's defining that term? It reminds me of a conversation I was having around kind of one of these, is the world getting better 
types of conversation. And, you know, you have the pinkers of the world and others on that side of the fence who would make these arguments that, oh, if you look at these measurements of wealth or how much people are making, more people are coming out of extreme poverty than ever before, right? And, you know, I don't know their exact numbers, but the amount of income that they're saying someone makes on a given day to me is not a livable amount of money, right? So if you're saying, oh, well, more people are making $3 a day and before they were making a dollar and that's some sign of progress, I would say, who can live on that, right? Like, so that's not yeah. livability yeah. in a way that's meaningful, but yeah. we're, we're making decisions seemingly arbitrarily. Well, it goes back to that issue of language because part of it is, is that you sort of want to know what is that language that is actually going to make things function? So much more useful to livability would be adaptability, the way in which there is synchronicity within the places in which we live. Our level of and feelings that we have engagement in and participation in those particular places, you know, it's always, again, it goes back to the relationship between policy, how things are brought about as regulation with any particular city to then those that say, you know, you're not doing enough. I mean, how do we move cities to become more walkable isn't just a removal of things in in one fell swoop. You're having to look at a lot of the other ways in which people live on a daily basis, how they get things. We have sort of like, it's an interesting contradiction because there is a huge shift within cities like New York where they're removing cars from streets but at the same time, we are ordering more stuff yeah. online and Shout having tried 14 Street exactly. on getting rid of cars is a great step forward, but, but the that, delivery is terrible. But exactly, <laughs> we're again in a way we're living kind of the world that we wrought, which is this segregation between private and public in sort of a private sort of sitting there waiting for public to screw up and kind of privatize something as opposed to better integration on this. It doesn't work unless that there is better integration. It's like understanding how people are actually going to go about getting the things that they need and then creating policy to meet that. So yeah, we're, we're going through kind of a, a bit of a gray area right now. That's a very much a value exchange, right? There's a value exchange around consumption. There's a value exchange around time, wanting things more immediately. So I don't drive. I can, but I don't regularly drive. But I do notice, you know, weekends used to be a little less traffic, right? Especially if you're in a Brooklyn or a Queens or what have you. But now, as you mentioned, delivery, whether it's food deliveries, and I'm not talking about regular takeout, but delivering of groceries and, yeah. and packages, regular mail, like now those things are running all the time where the traffic is filled with FedEx trucks, UPS trucks, U.S. Postal Service, not to mention the scooters delivering regular kind of takeout, DoorDash and Uber Eats and all the rest of it. And, and I always think, what are the choices that we're making as it pertains to how we move around this city? Well, that's the thing. I mean, it goes back to that. We all don't have the ability to solve the world that we sort of come into. And so in a way, when you see a lot of this sort of consumption that has been made far more complicated with e-commerce and so forth. It's, it's a residual code. We're, we're shopping and buying all in the ways that we did before, but we're just doing a lot more of it. And it's now becoming much more concentrated within urban areas. And we didn't really plan for that. We didn't see that. How much of that is that we're shipping around is packaging. How much of that is 
stuff that actually could be grown and produced right where we are. We don't think about those particular issues. And then we even regulate against it because we say, well, I don't want to have some farm next to my new luxury condo or something. And you get that kind of issue. But those types of problems of like looking at things more holistically and understanding, are people going to want to stay living here? Do you have a combination of the right kind of diversity to sort of keep a city going in that way? One of the biggest issues that cities and I think the world is yet to sort of figure out completely is we have a growing aging population. We have people who are living longer. So you have people who are staying, do they have the ability to age in place? Are they going to stay there? They're going to stay. They're going to stay where they're living. How are they? Can they afford to live where they're living? Are they getting food? There's a lot of things that we kind of don't think about that actually could be beginnings of new solutions. You know, there's a project in Italy where they combined housing for the elderly with dorms because to offset costs and also deal with care issues and stuff like that. It's like trying to be more inventive in terms of how we see the whole system of how society is changing is really the kinds of things that we need. And also, it's interesting you talk about care because I'm, I'm working on an idea because I generally believe in this post-demographic reality. This alphabet soup we have of millennials and Gen Z and Gen X and all the rest of it, I don't think it tells whole stories. We're more complex than these arbitrary decisions as to you were born here, you were born here, so you're in this group. Yeah. There is one part of it, though, I will say. People who are of a certain age are aware of the people that just came before them. So the only thing in terms of generational kinds of studies right now, and we've done a lot of studies around this sort of globally. We were doing a study in South Korea several years ago. Mm -hmm. And an older sister to a younger sister the one that sort of got into the job market before the recession hit and the whatever, and then the other that didn't, mm-hmm. is that their attitudes and how they go about things is like, they're looking at, it's like fathers and sons. It's like parent to child. It's like that kind of narrative is that you say, why did you screw it up so much for me? There's a bit of blame that yeah. sort of goes on. And like, there's no value to looking at them generationally, but there's a behavioral kind of phenomenon that's definitely happening. I would say that millennials that actually, to sort of use their terminology, that got a job prior to the recession of 2009 act differently than those that worked after that. And so, but we tend to kind of then do this confirmation bias and we lump it all in and we say, oh, and they're all this way and that has no value. It's the lumping that I challenge, you know, that I agree that within that frame, because now we're looking at the larger societal situation, right? So if you got in before the break, even if you're in the demographic, you're going to frame your life experiences differently than those who came in afterward. And because the care piece is what really anchored this for me, because they'll say, and I, I think I have this in my notes, right? Millennials are, you know, they're selfish, they're snowflakes, they're very like worried about everything and overly sensitive about stuff. And what I found toward your piece about aging generations that they're the ones taking care of parents or grandparents partially because they're living at home longer, the family circle, they're not branching out as much due to environment. And so it's anchoring them into roles that maybe people at their age might not have had, right? So they might not be having the kids and buying the house, but they're taking care of parents and maybe even younger siblings. Yeah. And it's stuff ex- like that. So it's it's just, exactly that. It's yeah. a, I mean, it's like if you take 
people and put them in a situation of which they have to sort of adapt their behavior in a particular way and they stay in that and they continue adapting in that way, you're going to have a different future. You're going to have a different future outcome. I mean, it's sort of the obvious example of that is when people study kind of what happens during recessions and then people kind of contract their spending and, you know, they start sort of seeing the things, they start seeing the world they live in differently. They start going, oh, well, I can make use of that. What do I have in my pantry that I could be eating and and sort of turning into food? Because you're not looking out as much. You're kind of looking, it's much more of a process of self-actualization that happens. And so some generations right now have that process of kind of self-actualization. There is a bit of blame, though. I mean, I noticed the New York Times did a story, the OK Boomer kind of, uh, which is very, which is very like, you know, because there is a little bit of, to make my Watchmen reference, (laughs) is the skeletons in the closet. And it's kind of the shit that we thought wasn't going to, uh, I hope I can say that, but (laughs) is that we thought wouldn't come home to roost. And we're sort of realizing, oh, It's always been like that. And there's a lot of these kinds of issues that we say, we made a lot of trade-offs. I mean, it goes back, it's interesting about the Watchmen because it goes back to the 1980s and those trade-offs that we're really kind of dealing with now. We blame a lot of what we have, even Silicon Valley and so forth. But that was really rooted in deregulation during the 1980s. And it's our, you know, our Gordon Gecko moment of history. Greed is good. And so we're kind of like, going through this process of saying, you know, and scaling the idea of viability. You talk about like, if something is viable, minimal viable product type of thing. There's something potentially good about that, that we can design things faster and we understand. But the problem is, is that we get immediate amnesia and we say the viability overrides the fact that it's actually causing a harm that yeah. we just don't want to really don't address. think about the repercussions. Exactly. And that's the challenge with speed, that we're so focused on getting to the line faster than the other person yeah. that we're not thinking about all the bumps and bruises along the way. And then these things live, right? Like that minimal viable product that you described has a life far beyond that minimum viable moment. Yeah. And so there's ramifications of that as it extends its life. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that you sort of refer to news of the moment. And the news of the moment is the video of Sheryl Sandberg talking about what transparency is to Facebook. It just feels sort of like a dissociative state. It's sort of like, I used to be able to say all these things and people used to go, wow, yes, you're doing really great stuff. But nobody believes it anymore because there's so much else that's happening. We've become kind of aware of a lot of that. And the only issue, though, is, is that we still don't have an out. We still don't yeah. like, we don't know what else to do, but at least we know that it's not working. Problem is, is that I think that we have culturally right now, which is a little bit sort of sad and it's tough to deal with, especially if we are likely going to be going into a recession by 2021, is that there's kind of a malaise. It's sort of, there's a numbness when you talk about generations, people of a certain age, that's all that matters. People who are going to be trying to look for a job and sort of deal with planning a future have kind of a numbness and they feel as though you sold us out. Yeah, You're telling me that if I have a new iPhone or whatever, and also too, that you expect me to have a social profile for me to get the job that yeah. I want. There are a lot of these kind of things that I guarantee you bite back and that you get a different culture. That's why you look at this mapping of dissent in this process, because there's our future there. And it's sort of beginning to tell us what likely will happen and how people will begin to adapt in ways that we can't quite 
imagine right now. Yeah, I think the inflection, I'm not going to sit here and predict that Facebook is over, right? But I think some of their numbers should be concerning as users, not necessarily advertisers and the people who monetize the site. You know, when we talked a little bit about amnesia, we have seen these sites go away, right? Like MySpace, I remember MySpace dominated. Facebook came along, killed it. MySpace was wonky. MySpace is a graveyard, right? They tried to relaunch with Justin Timberlake a few years ago. That was a flop, right? So who knows? No one sees the end until the end is near, right? Nokia didn't see the end. WeWork might not be seeing the end, right? Life happens fast. Yeah, I mean, but that's the thing. It's kind of funny. I mean, in terms of social media, you almost have to have kind of a meta view of what the future of social media is. The the meta view of social media was actually existed. I remember doing research for a media company back in, uh, I think it was like 2006 or something. And it was studying how taggers, graffiti artists that go around using Evite as the way in which they communicated to be able to coordinate those particular bombings that they were doing. And so what we have is that we create social networks that say they are this thing and we expect a certain loyalty to them. The new reality, I would say, for people who are younger is that they don't really have any sort of affiliation to it. What it is, is that they use it the way they use it and they subvert it. It's a very hip hop kind of idea. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of being in progress, sort of like, and I'll use your stuff because I don't have anything else, but I'm going to manipulate it in the way that I need to. We all become hackers, essentially. There's just sort of, it becomes easier to. It's not hard to be a hacker in a way on some level, but that becomes a much more volatile kind of world. And you also have to worry about the idea that people sort of become very good at being different people at the right moment. So you wonder if you're ever dealing with the real version yeah. of the person that you're talking this could to. Be one of those philosophical sides, right? Like what becomes real? Yeah. Well, how many, how many accounts does an average 15, 16-year-old have? And they have different personas that different people access in different ways. And so there's this already kind of splitting of our identity in that way and expected to. Picture that in a world in which you know you're being surveilled And so you sort of begin to sort of develop this way of being enough to be able to survive and sort of do what you need to do. But then there's this other kind of you that lives under the the surface. surface. And how that sort of, it needs to feed. It needs to like, you know, every part of us is social. Studying those kinds of evolutions are very useful to sort of dealing with understanding unknowns. And that's what the really, the yeah. root of forecasting is. I would say that maybe there's some backcasting to do. Like, let's look at how marginalized and people who lived under segregation existed, right? Like they had to live one way, literally, in order to survive and navigate their spaces, which required any number of personal and, and social and cultural norms, even the way in which you spoke, the language used, regardless of your education, regardless of your class and what have you, just to navigate space. And then in a community that was safe, you lived a completely different way, right? It's a great example because, I mean, like, there are many people who would say that this country went through the civil rights movement and then we solved all that and we're fine. (laughs) The fact of the matter is it didn't. And so, and and the worst thing is, is those that are very convinced that sort of like that's in the past and whatever. And then there are people who have to recognize that there's this way in which that you have to navigate how people talk on the surface and how they even regulate things on the surface and how things actually behave underneath. 
An example of that where you see true sort of ways in which that's working is labor practices and like the decline of unions and sort of what is becoming the return of unions because it's about equity. It's about being able to have some sort of sense of what your future might be and you're in control of that. And that has roots in the civil rights movement and it's very tied in with that. The future of work is labor. I say it and write it all the time. I want to shift us to a section of the show that I call Off the Dome where I'm going to ask you some questions and I just want to hear the first response that comes, boom, off the dome. You ready? I think so. Yes. Don't, <laughs> no one's harmed by off the dome. <laughs> I hope but it, not. But it's a nice little thought-provoking thing. What is the worst trend in design, trend, quote unquote, that you've seen over the past couple of years? The use of the term museum <laughs> for anything that is marketed as Instagrammable and so forth, the pop-up and really the decline of museum and that is really kind of sad. Next question. You have to put one of these people out to sea on an ice float. Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, which one gets the ice float? You can't put them both. (laughs) I would actually say, I would say Zuckerberg because, yeah, I would. Do I have to say why? You can. I'm Um, (laughs) always down for a why if a why is coming. Because I think that they're, you know, There's still a story that Bezos could have. If society bites back and regulation comes in, there's an adaptability there. There's nothing else for Facebook to really do. And when I hear conversations around cryptocurrencies and so forth like that, that's kind of frightening. That's absolutely, I mean, like that's where you go from like political advertising and, you know, whatever you go to cryptocurrency. It seems to be you could sort of pull back Bezos into certain things that are being solved within society. My last one is most significant Detroit contribution, automotive industry or Motown? It's obviously Motown because, you know, it's sad because it's the thing that lasts through and what we've tried to return to. I mean, I think in a way you always sort of think of like what the greatest contribution is is that what emotionally you want to return to. Does anybody really want to emotionally return to what was the birth of Henry Ford and building what is essentially kind of the beginning of the end? You can't be Motown. (laughs) That's my hometown. There it is. There it is. The last segment on the show is called The Drop, where I'm asking for a recommendation, something that our listeners should be aware of. could be anything. could be a book. It could be a piece of music. Anything at all that you've come across that you say like, hey, you know what? This is something you guys should check out. I'm going to have one too. These are the things that I wish I was asked before. I'm kind of blank at the moment. I'm sorry. My head is a bit, uh, I have something, but I don't have it. Okay. Well, I'll I'll do my drop. Okay. You do your drop. Um, And it's funny because when you talked about museums, my drop actually references a museum. Okay. But it references a book and it's called The Museum of Innocence by Orhan Parmak. And I read this book maybe about two months ago, and it still has resonated with me. I was in Istanbul very recently and got a chance to actually visit the site Mm. of the museum that's framed in the book. Very moving, very touching, very all over the place, which is probably why I like it. But that's my particular drop for this session. Great. Well, Thank you. We'll put your drop in the show Yeah, you can just sort of put it in quotes or something or something. I definitely will. I definitely (laughs) will. It's been a pleasure having Tim Stock join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and via our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, 
listen, and share. You can follow me on Twitter via Far Flung Phil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.